once again, dear listeners, and thank you for joining us here at the Republic Broadcasting Network. I'm Bruce G. McCarthy, your host for the next one hour, and you are listening to Datum Line. In our last Datum Line broadcast, entitled Economic Myths and the Science of Deceit, Part 11, we returned to George Bancroft, a 19th century historian and patriot, who, at the age of 86, published a plea for the Constitution in an effort to correct the historical heresies of the United States Supreme Court in a legal tender case called Juilliard versus Greenman. It was the Juilliard Court that announced a revolutionary concept of inherent sovereign federal power, and this in a case to make the mere promise of money equal to the money itself, in the spirit of tyrannical sovereign European monarchies from which Americans had separated, or so Mr. Bancroft thought. This opinion reversed nearly 100 years of legislative history and judicial interpretation. In so doing, it laid a crucial building block for a central bank as outlined 36 years earlier in the Communist Manifesto of 1848. Only 30 years after the Juilliard decision, the Federal Reserve System began operation in the year 1914, and in the span of only 50 years managed to confiscate our gold and silver coinage, replacing it with 100% intangible credit, which their system creates out of absolutely nothing. Decided in 1884, Juilliard would breathe a new spirit of legitimacy into so-called paper money, a popular but inaccurate phrase nowhere found in the Constitution, the original Coinage Act, or, to the best of my knowledge, any federal statute written thereafter. The words, as properly adopted, were bills of credit, hence the abbreviated form still used today, such as a $10 bill, as found in your billfold. Now, it may come as a great surprise to some advocates of United States notes <clears throat> that our founding fathers were not ignorant buffoons lacking in linguistic precision when confronted by the legislative challenges at the Constitutional Convention of 1787. Whether they all knowingly work together in pursuit of the same noble ends has become a matter of recent controversy and conjecture. But clumsy, inarticulate country bumpkins, they were not. This despite the fact that there was no federal aid to education or glossy textbooks to explain how they had evolved from a rock or maybe a petrified pencil. Economic reformers of the populist persuasion have repeatedly and authoritatively asserted that the inherent sovereign power of Congress to issue United States notes is found in the Constitution, although they're baffled as to why it took them over 70 years to exercise that power, and almost 100 years for it to be justified by a court divided along party lines in defense of the first administration under the Constitution to issue legal tender bills of credit by a vote of eight Republicans to one Democrat. Which administration? Abraham Lincoln's. Now, it might be argued by populists and a modern-day Harvard professor of law that only the Republican members of the Juilliard Court correctly understood that the constitutional power to coin money really included the power to coin paper. Well, stand by for this one. Our message today is entitled Economic Myths and the Science of Deceit, Part 12. 
I'm Bruce G. McCarthy, and you're listening to Datum Line. And on the other side of this break, we will get into the subject of coining paper. Economic Myths and the Science of Deceit, Part 12. Did you know that the constitutional power to coin money included the coining of paper? Well, you would if you went to Harvard or listened to Bill Still, whose book, No More National Debt, published in 2011, gives space to this kind of wisdom. Now, I can understand his criticism of the so-called gold standard argument made by people who likes to identify as gold bugs. In fact, gold bugs is even mentioned in the uh, index of his book. But it's a pity that so much intellectual steam and counterproductive name-calling is expended between economic reformers who fashion their opposing arguments from the same idiotic vocabulary invented by bankers and modern economists to bring America and the rest of the world to its knees. The most basic economic expressions are tossed about with such casual disregard for their meaning that I'm amazed anyone will listen patiently to such an argumentative and befuddled leadership who cannot even distinguish between what served as constitutional lawful money and a mere promise to pay it. And that's only one example of what we find on two opposing sides of a long and heated argument. So it is that spokesmen strive at all costs to defeat their adversaries in the pursuit of victory, which seems to be the only goal. You see that in the courtrooms. Truth being trampled in the noisy and chaotic process. Is it any wonder that in the realm of economics and moral rectitude, society is very slow to learn the lessons of life? Now, in an attempt to analyze the word coin, used as a verb in Article 1, Section 8, Paragraph 5 of the Constitution, Bill Still relies upon Harvard Law Professor Robert G. Nadelson to explain its meaning in a treatise entitled Paper Money and the Original Understanding of the Coinage Clause. This is published in the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy, summer 2008. I emphasize that word policy, uh, we've been through that word before. Uh, the uh, derivation of that word is from Middle English. Middle English is from about 1150 to 1475 A.D. And Old French, uh, that's from about the 9th to the 16th century. And it comes from the word polisi. And then there's the Latin word politia, if I've pronounced that correctly. I didn't take Latin in school. And then Greek, politia, perhaps. And then according to Webster's New World Dictionary for 1966, it says, see, police. Get that? Our word police is derived from the word polisi, politia, or politia, from whence we get the word 
policy. Policy is used quite frequently in the realm of economics and certainly in the political realm. In fact, I have in the past uh, used material from a college textbook entitled Readings in Money, National Income and Stabilization Policy. This was published back in the 1960s, around 1965, by Smith and Teagan. And uh, I had some spare time years ago, and so I went through this book, not only taking notes and highlighting, uh, but I got so enamored with how many times the word policy showed up. And I'm trying to take a look at this book now, see how many pages there are. Oh, it's about 550 pages. And I counted them up. Over 2,177 times the word policy shows up. Well, you know, you can get that word pretty well uh, emblazoned into your mind if you read it that many times. Okay? And the word policy is very apropos to the subject of so-called paper money because this stuff called paper money is how you control the world population. Uh, it's, it's because it's a means by which government feeds they're slaves. Okay? If they can give you what people call money and they get it for nothing, then you can go out and steal it from the guy who produces it, the poor farmer. Okay? And you get to eat, and government gets your vote because government fed you. Well, no, government didn't feed you. The farmer fed you. The government just gave you the license to steal from the farmer so that you could eat. And that's how you take care of your pets. If you stop feeding your pets, they're not going to come home. They're going to go someplace else where somebody else will feed them. See? Now, if you enjoy the odyssey of America's spiritual, political, and economic decline, then you can thank a Harvard professor for the various Pied Pipers who are leading us into a brave new world dictatorship of the fascist banking and corporate elite. Call me names if you want to, but it's college and university graduates who are deciding our catastrophic national fate by a flawed understanding of Scripture, by their absurd economic policies, and by judicial opinions telling us what the Constitution really meant when the document itself could tell you what it means. And speaking of man-made wisdom, some of our own listeners can tell you of their experiences in higher education, particularly in those college courses on economics where almost nothing made sense from day one to graduation. Back around 1983, a Colorado Church of Christ pastor had told me, following my presentation to his local congregation, that his college course on agricultural economics made no sense, but that he was afraid to ask any questions for fear that everyone else got it and would poke fun at his honest inquiries. That's how peer pressure is able to suppress the truth of educational stupefaction. At any rate, I told him that probably no one else understood any of it either, and that they too were afraid to fess up to the total waste of their parents' contribution to their miseducation. So how do you get a passing grade in a subject that defies common sense? Well, everybody knows how. You give the professor a stupid answer to match a stupid question, and you get the grade. But how will you get and hold a cushy job on Wall Street or on the Potomac or in corporate America in this mystifying world of banking, economics, and finance after having wasted four or more years of your life learning the prosaic nonsense of a subject you wish to God had never been invented? Well, that's easy, too. You keep repeating the same nonsense your professor taught you, 
and that all of your classmates regurgitate often enough to stay current as a pathological liar. It's by this tried and true method that all of you will come to believe it, after which no one will be able to prove that you're lying. And at this point, you qualify for chairman of the Federal Reserve, president of the United States, head of the IMF or the World Bank. I mean, there's almost no limit to the great opportunities that will be open to you shortly before they check you into a psych ward. This is the great American dream that George Carlin talked about, the one where you have to be asleep to believe it, or else insane. Now let's get back to Professor Nadelson, who points out, says Bill still in his book, that coin, and here we apparently are using the word as a noun, he says, quote, even in monetarist Britain, I had to look up the word monetarist, I've seen that word, but uh, I couldn't find a dictionary in my house that has it, even my law dictionaries. Uh, but I think that must be back in the days when Britain actually used something as money. He says, back in monetarist Britain, it meant payment of any kind. And that the verb to coin could mean to make or forge anything. Then he puts it in brackets, represented today by the common expression, to coin a phrase. So, pursuant to this definition, I'm still quoting now, paper money could be coined. Wow. With the commingling of quotations, within quotations, plus hard and soft-bracketed parenthetical expressions, it's hard for a college dropout like me to distinguish how much of this fog is being generated by Professor Nadelson as opposed to Bill Still. But let's look at this. First, what they do or did in Britain is irrelevant to any discussion of the powers granted to Congress by the United States Constitution, which, as a matter of law, is the controlling element. Second, the only relevance of Nadelson's observation is in regards to the use of English words that are common to Britain and the United States. Third, when our founding fathers wrote the fundamental order of law for the Federal Union, and a word they used had several meanings and applications, the only way to avoid confusion would be to apply the definition pertinent to the subject matter at hand. Let me give you an example. The word bill, as used in Article 1, Section 10, Paragraph 1, regarding no state shall emit bills of credit, is not to be expanded to mean a statement of charges for goods and services. Here's your bill. Or a handbill, which is an advertising poster. It is not to be construed to mean a preliminary piece of legislation. Or some kind of legal procedure, like a bill of particulars. And you certainly wouldn't expand it to take in the meaning of, let's say, a beak-like portion of a bird. Or the point of an anchor the brim of a hat, or the nickname for William. To employ inapplicable definitions far beyond their natural limits is both foolish and dishonest. So let's give Bill Still and this poor Harvard professor a helping hand, starting with a dictionary of legal terminology. To coin, as a verb, means, quote, to fashion pieces of metal into a prescribed shape, weight, and degree of fineness, and stamp them with prescribed devices by authority of government in order that they may circulate as money. Where do we get this definition? 
Well, Black's Law Dictionary, second, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth edition, and probably the later editions. I don't have an earlier one, but I'm pretty sure that the first edition had it as well. Well, where did Black's Law Dictionary get the definition? We'll touch that on the other side of this break. This is Dynamite.
but not in a free enterprise system under the United States Constitution as framed by its authors. For example, Article 1, Section 10, Paragraph 1 says, No state shall make anything but gold and silver coin a tender in payment of debts. And for Congress to declare anything else a means of lawful payment requires that the Constitution be amended by a constitutional convention, which has not been done since the demonetization of our gold in 1934 and our silver in 1963 to 68. On page 32 of No More National Debt, Mr. Still critiques Congressman Ron Paul's book and the Fed, and specifically at page 18, where Mr. Paul says, quote, The Constitution placed a ban on paper money. Well, that's not really true because there's no such thing as paper money per se, but we're supposed to know what he means. He says the Constitution placed a ban on paper money and permitted only gold and silver as money. In reply, Mr. Still says, quote, This is the most egregious error in this book. Uh, I wish. A complete misinterpretation of the Constitution, says Mr. Still. Paul completely leaves out that paying in gold and silver coin was only for state governments. And on top of that, this section has been completely ignored over the years. What's that supposed to mean? He goes on to say, There is no place, the words no place are in all capital letters, there is no place in the Constitution that places a ban on paper money, and the United States Supreme Court has ruled as much. End quote. Well, Bill is absolutely correct about there being no place in the Constitution that expressly bans paper money, for at least two reasons. First, the Constitution says nothing about paper money, even though it's the most common and inaccurate expression used on the street. Historically, there's no such thing. Paper has always been too heavy to use as money. The sum of money numerically depicted in the corners of a so-called Federal Reserve note has no relevance whatsoever to any amount of paper anywhere. That number expresses a sum of intangible credit, which credit is being used as if it were money. Second, there's no need for an express ban on bills of credit emitted by Congress, as we've explained many times on these programs. If Bill Still will simply read the first five words of Article 1, Section 1, those words being all legislative powers herein granted, it should be clear as to why. Unless he's smitten with the bombastic smog, BS for short, of black-robed Harvard graduates rewriting American history from the bench in disputes like Juliet versus Greenman. Well, here's our music. This is our mid-time break. You're listening to Datumline, and I'm Bruce G. McCarthy. listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network because you can handle the truth. Welcome back to this half of this installment of Data Mine. I'm Bruce G. McCarthy if you're joining us at this time. And you're listening to Economic Myths and the 
Science of Deceit, Part 12, this new economic series. And on the other side of the break, I had mentioned uh, Bill Still's book. It's an interesting-looking book. Uh, it's entitled uh, No More National Debt, published in 2011. It's billed as the first interactive book. Uh, we'll maybe get into that in just a moment. And uh, he had critiqued Ron Paul's book and the Fed and uh, criticized Ron Paul as making the most egregious error uh, in that Ron Paul had said that the Constitution placed a ban on what most people call paper money. And uh, Bill still said that was an egregious error. You know, uh, Congressman Ron Paul, <laughs> if I'm not mistaken, he's about the only only person who ran for, for president in the last probably few decades who... Uh, Seems to know something about the Constitution. I mean, I, 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 be, I, mean, I, I take my, I, I, I'd be careful about criticizing him on his understanding. But nevertheless, a bill is correct that there is no express place in the Constitution that bans so-called paper money uh, emitted by Congress. Now, the states are expressly prohibited. No state shall coin money. <laughs> coin money, right? They can't print it. Not even Congress could do that. And they couldn't emit bills of credit either. Two different expressions there. And uh, there was a reason. Because the Constitution is a document of express delegated powers. Uh, so I would now encourage populists, such as Bill, uh, if uh, Article 1, Section 1, those first five words, all legislative powers herein granted, if that section doesn't explain this, then I'd suggest that you read and then reread the Tenth Amendment until the light goes on. And if you don't happen to have a copy of it right handy, I'll read it. The powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution or prohibited to it by the states or to the states are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. The powers not delegated. Okay? Just keep reading that until the light goes on. Now, I know Bill isn't stupid. I mean, he's produced some nice-looking DVDs. I don't agree with much of the contents, but they do look nice. And books. <clears throat> His heart is surely in the right place. But, you know, I think it's even those gold bugs out there who fail to convey some essential truths to Bill, because they, too, are as trapped in the linguistic sludge of modern economics that he is. Next in his book, Bill invites his readers to see the definitive ruling in Juliet versus Greenman by scanning that interactive image, or there gets quite a few of them through the book. And I guess you use a camera-enabled smartphone. That's a pretty neat idea, huh? Well, I'm 65 years old and a college dropout, and I'm not about to be outsmarted by a phone. So I've not seen the definitive ruling he provides. Keep in mind, however, that most people have no legal acumen and are easily blown away by the sophistry of black-robed tyrants whose obscure opinions are even opposed by Supreme Court judges who write the dissenting opinions. Now, with respect to Juliet versus Greenman, <clears throat> uh, populists misconstrue that decision in a most egregious sort of way. They believe that they can put out United States notes will nationalize the Federal Reserve like Steve Zarlenga proposed, you know, the head of, head of the uh, American Monetary Institute and the Dennis Kucinich bill. Just, we'll just nationalize the Federal Reserve like the Communist Manifesto says we should. And then we will uh, we'll print up these things, we'll call it United States money, 
There won't be any gold. There won't be any silver. <clears throat> They're not redeemable in anything. Because Congress can do that. Julia versus Greenman said so. No, it didn't. Julia did not decide on the validity of United States notes that were not redeemable in gold or silver coin. Why not? Well, because they could not decide that question. Why not? Because that question could not have been brought before the bench. Why not? Because there were no such notes issued by the Lincoln administration. All Lincoln greenbacks, so-called, bore a promise to pay. Thus they acknowledged that the note itself was not the payment, and therefore could not have been the money. The defect of those notes was in the proper notification to the recipient of those notes as to when he could expect to get paid. It's just simply said, the United States of America will pay the bearer $10. But it didn't say when. You see, a note, in order to be a valid note, has to tell you when. A note is an absolute and unconditional promise issued by the maker or the drawee. It promised to pay a sum of money at a specified time or on demand. It did neither, because they didn't know when the war was going to be over. But they would resume specie payment after the war ended, but they just didn't know when that was. Now, a free man has the right to know when he's going to get paid, lest he be told over and over again, until hell freezes over, oh, come back later, and, we, and we'll pay you then. Well, come back later, and, and, and we'll pay We promise to pay you. <clears throat> But not now. You have a right to know. And that was, that was the defect in those notes, plus the fact that Congress had no power to issue notes, not even gold and silver certificates, 100% redeemable. Those were legal tender as well. <clears throat> no state shall make anything but gold and silver coin a tender and pay under debt. And if you're going to have a unified system, the federal government's got to be operating on the same system. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, having touched upon bills of credit, it's worth noting how Bill still explains this phrase to his reader on page 90. Quote, there is so much confusion, he says, on the definition of a bill of credit. Let's try to unravel this century's-old mystery. End quote. Well, I agree with him. There is a lot of confusion on the definition. And one would naturally expect Bill to provide a legally binding definition at this point in time. But no. Instead, he defers to a rendition offered by Professor Nadelson. But you know how it is. You know how some folks are really impressed with Harvard credentials, you know, in this age of Marxist education, in which Masonic man works his way upward by degree to become God. Here's how he defines it, quote, the phrase bill of credit was technically only one kind of paper money, no such thing, a circulating instrument representing a government debt, end quote. Okay, so paper money is simply a sum of money due or owing, that's debt, citing state versus to say. Now let's compare this with Black's Law Dictionary, fourth edition from 1968, and then their fifth edition from 1979, which gives a definition that Bill Still would really love, to demonstrate the chicanery of editors who change the definitions and conceal bank fraud on behalf of Congress and the Federal Reserve System. Okay? 
Black's Law Dictionary, 4th edition from 1968, quote, Bill of Credit, quote, in constitutional law, period. Remember that phrase, in constitutional law, period, because that phrase is going to be deleted in the next edition. A bill or promissory note issued by the government upon its faith in credit designed to circulate in the community as money. That's not quite correct. It's designed to circulate in the community as if it were money. There's a big difference. Quote, and redeemable at a future day. Keep that in mind because that phrase is also going to be deleted in the next edition. This from Black's Law Dictionary, 4th edition. And then they supply supporting court sites. Now we're going to turn to the fifth edition. Quote, bill of credit. A bill or promissory note. Oh, see that phrase in constitutional law is gone. Why? Because we're not in constitutional law anymore, are we? A bill or promissory note issued by the government upon its faith and credit designed to circulate in the community as money. No, wrong again. As if it were money. Period. What was wrong with that? Well, they also deleted the phrase and redeemable at a future day. Oh, is that important? You're darn tootin'. They took the promise off the note. Now they're going to change the definition to conceal the fraud. They also have no court sites in support of this new definition. Why not? Because the court never came along in support of this position. So, populists out there, please get this, under get this understanding. Juilliard does not support United States notes that carry no promise to pay the money. That's the way it is. Okay. Now, in our remaining time for this broadcast, let's review the notion of inherent federal sovereign power that we opened up in our last message, an idea that reared its ugly head in the congressional debates following hostilities that began on April 12, 1861, when Confederate Commander Beauregard fired on the federal fortification of Fort Sumter in South Carolina a state that seceded from the Union shortly after Abraham Lincoln's presidential election in 1860. Our focus will be the method resorted to by Congress in financing this war on behalf of the Union North, specifically by issuing legal tender United States notes in defiance of the Constitution. This was the first attempt in over 70 years since the Constitution was written that federal credit would be forced upon a free people as if it were an equal dollar quantity of gold or silver lawful money. This was the beginning of legal tender to which our generation submits without a whimper and without a clue as to the two-century-long war between credit and lawful money that has been carefully and successfully obscured by more than the mere passage of time. The populace are helping to obscure it. Listeners unfamiliar with the hidden agenda of modern education orchestrated by tax-exempt foundations like Ford, Rockefeller, Guggenheim, and Carnegie's International Endowment for Peace, along with over 2,800 Carnegie-funded public libraries to help spread their gospel of central planning, then you might want to look for the video, Hidden Agenda, produced several years ago by G. Edward Griffin, who interviewed the chief congressional investigator of the Carroll Reese Committee. That committee was formed in 1953 to investigate tax-exempt foundations. And you'll get an eye-opening story of when 
they began, those entities like the Carnegie International Endowment for Peace, when they began formal discussions as to America's socialist transformation that they were planning. They began before 1910. And the essential role that was to be played by public education and how the curriculum would have to be redacted and replaced with a new history of the American people. And that began only a few years later, following the Great War, later on known as World War I. Now, during the next several installments of our present series, I'm going to be drawing from four principal sources concerning the legal tender debates of 1862. Okay? And I'm going to let each one of the authors create an abbreviated backdrop as to the general economic climate in America, which preceded the federal crisis that, well, I'm from Maine, so I was taught to call it the Civil War. Southerners, please forgive me. And this war, which was quickly answered by the cry of necessity for legal tender and the Constitution's violation on every argument that could be devised for its circumvention. Now, as any honest person who has confronted his own sin nature will admit, when a desire to escape the confines of a sacred vow or solemn oath reaches fever pitch, such as when King David lusted after Bathsheba, no amount of logic or sound reasoning can surmount the folly that is sure and soon to follow. Our references will be taken from Pieces of Eight, The Monetary Powers and Disabilities of the United States Constitution, Volume 1, by Edwin Vieira, Jr., a man who certainly is not lacking in legal acumen. His two-volume set, published in 2002. I'll then turn in a subsequent broadcast to the book called Money. That's the only word in the title, Money, by Professor Edwin W. Kemmerer, Professor of International Finance, Princeton University. That was published in 1935. Thereafter, we'll turn to History of Coinage and Currency in the United States and the Perennial Contest for Sound Money. Author, A. Barton Hepburn, Doctor of Law, ex-comptroller of the currency, ex-superintendent of banking for the state of New York, and vice president of Chase National Bank, published 1903. And then finally, 20 Years of Congress, 1861 to 1881, from Lincoln to Garfield, with a review of the events which led to the political revolution of 1860. That's the title. Volume 1, James G. Blaine, a Republican from the state of Maine, and... Speaker of the House. His books, published 1884. Now, some of our listeners may recall our discourse on bank panics from a few months ago, and that the panic of 1857 had been triggered, in part at least, by a large influx of credit from the European financial centers speculating on America's railroad expansion, a panic that was felt on both sides of the Atlantic beginning only three years prior to Mr. Lincoln's presidential inauguration. It was during this panic that the British Parliament opened an investigation of the London Financial House of Morrison, Dillon and Company to learn that circulating bank credit easily exceeded 50 times the amount of gold and silver that those IOUs promised to pay. Are you listening, our British cousins? Such was the level of bank fraud 
that was perpetrated in England over 150 years ago. While the level of credit expansion was not likely to be as egregious here in the United States at that time, it can be safely estimated that American bankers overissued IOUs to the order of 300%, since state regulations typically allowed for a 25% coin reserve, according to the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas in its December Economic Review from 1975. And thus, up to 75% of the notes issued by state chartered banks, for those of you who like state chartered banks, were fully backed by absolutely nothing in the vault. Considerable gold and silver was already sequestered in bank vaults prior to the Civil War. American people were trusting in banks, you understand? We, we, we can't just seem to, we can't get away from that. But there was not enough gold and silver in those vaults to cover all of the loans that were leveraged against those coins. Repayment of the loans would likely be hampered by the war, wouldn't you think? And that war then served as a uh, the crisis necessary to justify suspension of specie payment, gold and silver, by the bankers. By golly, here's another break. I'm Bruce G. McCarthy, and you're listening to Datamline. segment of this installment of Data Line. On the other side of our last break, uh, I was providing my own backdrop for the economic situation in America just prior to the legal tender debates of 1862. And I had mentioned that uh, banks had uh, suspended specie payment uh, of gold and silver. And their justification for it was that, well, gosh, you got a war going on. You don't expect us to pay out gold and silver anymore, do you? And this set another tourniquet upon a withering and fearful economy. So we see that there's a commingling of hard times, commencing with the bank panic of 1857, followed by the outbreak of war in early 1861. And the profit potential for that would not be lost on the elite among financiers. And some of our listeners, you know, are no doubt contemplating the coincidental proximity of the Panic of 1907 to the Great War of 1914, which ended in 1918, only to be followed by another panic, 1921. Or maybe you're thinking about the Great Depression of 1929 to 1938 and the close proximity of World War II, which actually broke out in 1939. Or perhaps our War on Terror beginning in the Middle East and the unending global economic crisis. Strange bedfellows war, and bank panics. It's almost as if the smell of an international banker's cigar smoke can guarantee that a major fire is not too far away. Well, I can get carried away on this subject, and then we'll run out of time halfway through a sentence or something, because we've got a break coming up. program's almost over. Uh, in our next broadcast, I promise we're going to get into these legal tender uh, debates and uh, as I said, we're going to let uh, Mr. Edwin Vieira open the subject up in pieces of eight. Hope he doesn't mind. I enjoy the book. Uh, it's not uh, 
probably not going to be a fun read for people who aren't really interested in, in the subject of money banking and credit, and particularly from a constitutional perspective. I believe Mr. Vera, Vera has written the definitive uh, uh, source book, if you will, on the constitutional money from a constitutional perspective. Uh, anyway, we'll be getting into that in uh, Volume 1, Pieces of 8. And Pieces of 8, by the way, is 1,722 pages in two volumes. And uh, I forget how many footnotes. It's thousands of footnotes. I mean, this guy gets into footnote overkill like nobody I've ever seen. Just about every line has a footnote. And unfortunately, he sends me scurrying to the dictionary to look up uh, various words here and there just about every few pages. I, I feel like an intellectual uh, idiot uh, compared to what he presents. But nevertheless, we'll be going into volume one of Pieces of Eight, and we'll go into the legal tender debates of 1862, and then in the following broadcast, we'll be going into uh, pro uh, Professor Edwin Kemmerer's uh, discussion of those debates. Each one of these, of course, will take you back into the Congressional Globe, back in the uh, 1860s, for actual segments of the debates that took place. And you'll see that the people who voted for, catch that word now? The people who voted for the United States knows Lincoln Greenbacks, they were against them. And they knew they were violating the Constitution when they voted for them. That will come out. Okay? And you'll see uh, the intellectual bankruptcy to which they resorted in order to justify circumventing the Constitution. Okay? Um, that bankruptcy, I think, is still present with us. And I hate to accuse the populace of having that bankruptcy. But so be it. Hey, I'm Bruce G. McCarthy. I hope you found this of interest. Have yourself a good day. So long. smell some funky little things going on? Let me share this story with you. It's not so much a story, it's something I wrote years ago. Read your history, people. Stock markets collapse on Friday, bank seizures, closures, holidays take place after business hours on Friday. Do currencies or governments also collapse on Friday? <laughs> Tomorrow's Friday. Will the end come on this Friday, or will the inevitable collapse hold off for a while? The next round of the worst financial crisis in a hundred years is coming, people, and the government is out to make you and I pay for it. And will your savings survive a global banking wipeout? What happens when the U.S. sees hyperinflation? What if taxes soar not only for the rich? Can you survive the stock market tanks? Well, between a stock market wipeout, waves of bank failures, soaring government spending that will lead to hyperinflation and the destruction of the dollar's value, isn't it time that you prepare for the uncertainty which lies ahead? Protect your money now or forever kiss it goodbye. My friends, I offer you over six decades experience of hard asset ownership and knowledge and I'm prepared to handle the smallest detail in the balanced protection of your portfolio. For as the future of uncertainty continues to blanket this nation of ours, 
I believe that I can offer you the privacy, safety, security, and possibly some profitability which you deserve. And so I invite you to visit SierraMondrePreciousMetals.com for further information regarding protecting your wealth. Or call me, Jeffrey Bennett, at 602-799-8214. Or by email at KettleMoraineLTD at Cox.net for a private consultation. Once again, our phone number is 602-799-8214. It's almost Friday. Are you one of the millions of people who feel like there is a dark cloud hanging over their heads whenever they're using pharmaceutical drugs? For some, the short-term relief can turn into an opioid addiction nightmare. Have you ever wondered why CBD oil is a billion-dollar industry? It's because it works better than opioids and is actually healthy for you. However, CBD oil is stripped of all other helpful compounds found in the hemp plants. According to neuroscientists, the whole hemp plant, otherwise known as hemp paste, is even more effective than the chemically processed CBD oil. Are you ready to take back your health? You can try hemp paste by going to rbnhemppaste.com. That's rbnhemppaste.com. I'm so excited to have you as part of the Wild Pastures family, and we look forward to bringing you the pastures meats that you and your family will love. Now, we started Wild Pastures because so many of my clients would tell me they just couldn't find high-quality pasture-raised meats. And even when they did, it was so expensive that they couldn't afford to eat it regularly. Now, I'm not talking about the bottom-of-the-barrel healthy meats that have claims like natural or free-range or even cage-free, terms that were actually created by the industrial food industry to make us feel all warm and fuzzy about buying their low-quality products. I'm talking about truly nourishing pasture-raised meats, the kind that you'll never really find in a grocery store. Our farmers are doing things beyond organic. Our beef is 100% grass-fed and grass-finished and raised on pastures free from chemicals and other pesticides. Our chickens are 100% pasture-raised, where they get their natural diet of grass and forage and insects. We will never settle for free range, which is actually one of the most deceptive terms in the chicken industry. In fact, less than 0.1% of the chicken consumed in the United States is truly pasture-raised in the way that ours is. And our pork is 100% pasture-raised as well. So if you care about where your food comes from, then you've definitely made it to the right place. As a Wild Pastures member, you'll be supporting the most highly principled farmers in America and getting the most nutrient-dense, nourishing, and sustainable meats in the world. I'm confident you'll love being part of our mission at Wild Pastures, and you will really love the delicious, nourishing meats that we're going to deliver straight to your door. Visit republicbroadcasting.org and click the Wild Pastures banner ad. Secure a shipment today. Beef, poultry, and pork. Raised the way nature intended. Tahibo Tea Club's original pure pouty arco super tea comes from the only tree in the world that fungus does not grow on. As a result, it naturally has antifungal, anti-infection, antiviral, antibacterial, anti-inflammation, and anti-parasite properties. So the tea is great for healthy people because it helps build the immune system, and it can truly be miraculous for someone fighting a potentially life-threatening disease due to an infection, diabetes, or cancer. 
The tea is also organic and naturally caffeine-free. A one-pound package of tea is $49.95, which includes shipping. To order, please visit drinksupertea.com. The first word is drink, spelled D-R-I-N-K, then the word super, then the word tea. The complete website is drinksupertea.com. Or call us at 818-965-9113, Monday through Saturday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. California time. That's 818-965-9113, drinksupertea.com. My name is John. I'm the founder of Blackout Coffee, and I started uh, Blackout because I really love coffee. I've always loved coffee, and after traveling so much to Europe, South America, and trying so many different coffees that were so good, and uh, every time I came back, Uh, to the U.S., I was so disappointed with the coffee, so I figured that I had to do something about it. The biggest difference is really is on the beans and the roasting process, how we roast it, and how fresh it is. The fresher the roast, the better the quality. Here I have like all all of the coffee. It's roasted within one to two days prior to being shipped. So it literally gets to consumers' house within three to five days after being roasted. If you like coffee, you have to try ours. It's fresh roasted. It's one of the best beans that we can get. And you will definitely see the difference. Visit blackoutcoffee.com and use the coupon code REPUB10. That's REPUB10. Corporate media dominates the American opinion. Finding independent voices that counter this avalanche is becoming increasingly difficult. With the endless corruption running rampant throughout our government, independent voices are needed more than ever to battle the offensive against our freedoms and liberties. As a listener of RBN, no one understands this concept better than you. Now it's up to you to do your part. The time has come for you to take action and begin broadcasting the truth to hundreds or thousands of people every month. Sound impossible? Quite the contrary. With pointed slogans from LibertyStickers.com, you can reach countless sleeping Americans unaware that they live in a real-life wonderland. LibertyStickers.com has a huge inventory of political bumper stickers and messages that reflect the truth about our government, our politicians, and the future of America. With so many in stock, there's one perfect for you. Visit us today at LibertyStickers.com. Again, that's LibertyStickers.com. Do your part. Your voice is important. Let it be heard. Hey there, are you going to wait till the cows come home to get your new Ease-Off Drop-and-Lift? What in the world is an Ease-Off Drop-and-Lift? Our Ease-Off is a new tool to increase production for your meat processing company that will get that whole hog or half a beef on or off your rail with our remote control. That sounds great, but can I afford it? Sure, and the Ease-Off installs fast. The effortless operation will reduce fatigue, speed up your line, and increase profits. Okay, I'm convinced. Where can I get my Ease-Off? Go to easeoff.com. That's E-A-Z-E-O-F-F dot com. And hurry, because we're offering free shipping for a limited time. Easeoff.com. We make pigs fly. Cows, too. Easeoff, LLC, 417-932-6419. 
homeowners? Are you in foreclosure, expecting to be served with a foreclosure lawsuit, or suspect your lender has coerced you into an illegal mortgage transaction? A huge number of mortgages made in the last 10 years have legal issues and are possibly defective. State laws and the U.S. Supreme Court have upheld that defective mortgage documents are grounds for foreclosure defense and for counterclaims in favor of the homeowner. If your mortgage has been sold or assigned since closing the loan, it may be defective and you may be paying the wrong party and the lender may not have standing or the right to foreclose or collect payments under the law. If you would like to know if your mortgage is legal or not or know if you are paying the right party, we can help. Our initial consultations are free of charge. We are not attorneys. We are legal researchers and work closely with experienced lawyers who know how to help you find the evidence to help you keep your home. Call toll-free 1-855-2-KEEP-IT. That's 1-855-2-KEEP-IT today. Do you or someone you know suffer from chest pain, blood pressure, cholesterol, or irregular heartbeat? Are you looking for a more natural solution to overcome these health challenges? You hear the ads all the time. If this stuff's so good, why doesn't my doctor prescribe it? That's easy. Doctors are not trained in natural medicine. Extendivite Heart Tonic does want you to be as healthy as you can be, and it really works. Take Extendivite for six months, and your doctor will say, I don't know what you're doing, but don't stop. It's working for you. Get the dependability of Extendivite. Just see how you feel in six months. A two-month supply of either capsules or liquid is only $69.95 plus shipping and handling. Call 1-877-928-8822. That's 1-877-928-8822. Or visit heartdrop.com. Extend your life with Extendovite. Hello, hello, hello from beautiful Colorado. My name is Samuel Jung Kay, and I am currently the lead Shilaji hunter and master herbalist for Colorado Shilaji Company. In this video series, I will be discussing what we believe is the greatest of all adaptogenic superfoods and the single greatest natural healing remedy gifted to us by Mother Earth. I think you too will become as excited by this incredible substance called Shilaji as we were and are after our discovery of this amazing gift right here in beautiful, colorful Colorado. You may already know Shilaji by other names. Shilajit, Momio, Momi, Mami, Mineral Pitch, Asphaltum, and others. Shilaji literally translates to destroyer of weakness and conqueror of mountains. Shilaji has been used for thousands of years and is considered as the highest valued cure-all of any earthly substance. Look for the gold mountain and medical symbol logo in banners on republicbroadcasting.org to watch the full video and see more information. Use code GORBN when ordering. That's G-O-R-B-N. The secret to aging like fine wine is in the vines. Syrah grape seeds and skins contain high levels of flavonoids and resveratrol. Fermentation breaks these organic compounds down into smaller molecules, penetrating these therapeutic ingredients deeper into the skin, delivering faster and more effective results. Our handmade fermented skincare products are formulated with all natural ingredients and do not contain any phthalates or parabens. Similar products can cost as much as $180. At Natural Earth Medicine, we source our ingredients from local Arizona vineyards and cold process our oils to ensure that our customers receive the highest quality product in its purest form. Learn more at our website and try our fermented skincare products today. Visit naturalearthmedicine.com. That's naturalearthmedicine.com. 